Welcome to yet another episode of the New Ventures podcast with your host, Sanjoy Sanyal, founder of Regain Paradise, a climate finance consulting firm and a visiting fellow at the Cambridge Judge Business School. Today, we probe the question, what does it take to fast track the process of developing innovative private sector approaches to solving the greatest crisis facing humanity? To that, we have as our guest, Chris Coleridge, founder of Carbon 13, and a senior faculty at the Cambridge Judge Business School. Carbon 13, for those of you who do not know, is a venture builder for the Carbon Emergency. Welcome, Chris. It's great to be here, Sanjoy. Thank you for inviting me. Chris, let's start by asking you, accelerators and incubators for the climate startups is a crowded space. A friend of mine once said, there are less startups and more incubators. I once counted the number of incubators in clean energy in Kenya, and the number came up to more than a dozen. So what was the gap in the market that you were trying to address when you founded Carbon 30? Our model is that of a talent-first venture builder. This is a model that was pioneered in the UK by a company called Entrepreneur First, and has since been imitated and sort of taken very international by a company called Antler. And the idea is to bring together groups of founders who don't yet have a co-founder. So the initial point of value for that Carbon 13 creates is to bring interesting founding teams together. We saw that there were many people who are activated by the climate crisis to spend their career and spend their talents on doing some kind of climate-related innovation. But one of the first challenges, if you're trying to do something high impact and high growth, is to have a dream team. And so bringing those dream teams together was our first, our first port of call. We also felt that, as to the, the gap in the market, we also felt that the venture capital industry is evolving nicely in the direction of being able to support startups and projects that genuinely make a difference to CO2 equivalent emissions, but it's not quite there yet. And so drawing on some expertise that we have around the Cambridge ecosystem, we were able to put together a program that helps our founders work through their carbon impact, work through the way that they're going to really make a difference to emissions from first principles. So they're not sort of distracted so much by the, you know, what's the flavor of the month in venture capital? And they're able to really say, okay, well, the objective, the mission of our work is to really make a difference to carbon. What kind of value proposition, what kind of business model, what kind of engines of scalability are really going to do that? Well, that's a great introduction, and I'm going to take away two things. One is bring together very talented people who will then find each other and then tackle the problem they both agree on. And that's obviously different from, as I said at the beginning, from many other accelerators and incubators who are really taking in a company and then trying to build that company up. Does this make a huge difference in your opinion? Well, I think so. We have a tendency, which is very natural, to team up with people who are like us, and we feel that we can understand, share the same values, have the same attitude to problems and so on. But what's the challenge? If you're trying to do something breakthrough, you actually need some diversity in the top team. You need some complementarity. So built into our model is recruiting only founders who see the value of complementarity. And by having half commercial or non-technical founders in the mix and half technical founders in the mix, we're sort of building in from the start the idea that You don't have two technical founders starting on the journey. You have 
a technical founder and a commercial founder. It sounds a little bit straightforward and obvious the way I say it, but believe me, most teams that form, shall we say, organically are very often two commercial people who could really use a bit more technical expertise in the team or two technical people who can speak to each other forever about technical concepts, but struggle to figure out how to build bridges with the stakeholders, whether it's customers or other kinds of stakeholders that they need. We're baking in that complementarity to the process. And at least on our results so far, that seems to work well in terms of accelerating the projects. And you're right. A lot of my friends who otherwise run incubators would probably agree with you that, you know, the diversity and the strength of management teams is needs to be strengthened. And I think yours is a unique way of doing that. I think to understand this, we have to understand the process you follow. So let's start about you know the application process and the type of founders you attract. You've already talked about it, technical yep. founders and commercial founders, but maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit. So in our present model, we're bringing together cohorts of 70 people. We run two cohorts a year from our base in Cambridge, partly in person in Cambridge, but it's a lot of it is virtual. The vast majority of the program is virtual. That's, of course, just fitting in with the modern world. The founders fall into, broadly speaking, four buckets. We have scientists, so people who are bringing chemistry or engineering-based ideas and solutions to the table. We have software folks, so data scientists, people who understand machine learning and artificial intelligence, and software developers. Thirdly, we have commercial founders, by which we mean experienced commercial people. Typically, these are people who have some kind of founding experience, often successfully exited entrepreneurs. Sometimes it means they just have really gold-plated, excellent commercial experience, you know, coming from the industries, the emitting industries where the challenges are, where the problems are sitting. And finally, we have a group which we call the venture catalysts. Sometimes we call it the wild cards, which are people who have some kind of skill set that's typically non-technical, that's going to be really interesting, really valuable for a startup, but they don't quite fit the mold of being so commercially experienced that they're going to be the CEO. So we like to have a few young guns in the mix. If someone comes along with deep sustainability experience, experience, for example, in the carbon markets, they wouldn't necessarily be ready to be the CEO of the venture, but they're bringing something really valuable. The application process, it starts with a written application. We're looking to find out what's the background of the founder, of course, but also do they have an existing idea or are they hoping to meet someone else on our program who has an idea? What sectors of the economy are they interested in? We're interested in any solutions that could potentially take 10 million tons CO2 equivalent emissions per annum out of the emission space. So that covers really the whole economy. Most of what human beings do has some kind of carbon implication. We ask quite a number of questions on our application form that are designed to understand people's approach to leadership, people's approach to being in a team, approach to collaboration. As a shorthand, we could say, we're interested in people's emotional intelligence because you know, whether you're technical or whether you're commercial, the collaborative effort requires a certain level of openness to the other. That means that you're ready to embark on that collaborative journey with your co-founder. We get about a thousand applications per cohort. We select about 250 to interview. And of that 250, we make about 90 offers and then 70 of those 90 offers are accepted and people start on our, on our program. Great. Thousand people means that it has attracted talent from all over the world, which is what you talent first. But I was curious to understand how you assess emotional coaching. Yeah, it's subjective, of course. And we're lucky in our team to have five people, myself and four uh, colleagues, 
who have very significant experience of running entrepreneurship programs over the years. So to a certain extent, I'm going to tell you, we know someone who's difficult to work with when we see them, or we know someone who is perhaps a little bit of a monomaniac focused too much on their own agenda and their own concepts in their head, rather than in what the world thinks about those concepts. We have, if you work in the entrepreneurship field and the early stage startup field, as, as all of us have, we feel like you can recognize these things to a certain extent. On the written application, we're asking for management and collaboration situations that people have faced, how they've dealt with frustrations, how they've dealt with conflict. It's surprising to me how much people do reveal themselves, if you can put it that way, in the answers that they give to this kind of question. It's very notable. If you think about the typology or four buckets that I mentioned, clearly a commercial founder is a salesperson to some extent, and therefore they're going to understand that the application process is about putting their best foot forward and so on. When we get top scientists applying to our program, what I typically see is they're much more unguarded, right? They're much more ready to to say, well, look, my CV, my academic credentials speak for themselves. And therefore, I don't feel I need to put any time or energy into these questions about, about my personal working style. Sometimes the person's credentials and their ideas and their intellectual property are so great that we're going to interview them, even if we get some yellow flags coming up from the application form, because we're hoping that maybe they're interesting and perhaps we feel coachable or at least, you know, have some basic openness and warmth that's going to allow them to go on this collaborative journey. But I'm sorry to say that sometimes you have someone whose technical credentials are impeccable, but you can just tell from talking to them that they're going to find it difficult to really work in the kind of collaborative way that's necessary for a, a high impact I think uh, I get the point that commercial folks are often sales and the scientific team is not. You know, what I find unique about what you're doing is drawing out the scientists to come to the commercial world. And I yes. think that's useful thing for a lot of people to understand. If I may, Sanjoy, there's a particular moment in time we're in right now where the need for climate tech solutions is so great that the normal commercializing routes of take your innovation one TRL level at a time through a set of grants, through some pilot projects and so on, that's actually potentially slower than the approach of commercializing what you're working on th through a venture capital route. Can't say that about too many uh, verticals or too many moments in history, but we just happen to be at a moment where the, the world, if you want to put it that way, has such a, a high level of demand for climate tech projects that scientists really have this alternative way of approaching it. Maybe isn't so clear in other verticals in the same way. It is a unique moment in history. Nobody could disagree with you at this point. And the point that you make that it often takes a lot of time. Think of penicillin, right? Mm. The amount of time that it takes from a discovery to the point of being really applicable to solve human problems. Penicillin in the late 19th century, yeah. it became really commonplace only in the mid-40s. So it takes a lot of time and we don't have that amount of time for the climate crisis that we are facing today. And part of our logic for bringing together technical and commercial folks is not only, okay, you need a sales, you know, it's not as simple as, well, the, the technical concept needs a salesperson and someone to pitch it and someone to do the contracts and so on. It's also that we need to shape innovations in a way that's going to diffuse as rapidly as possible, right? We need to make choices along the way as the innovations spinning up that are going to allow for quick transition states. And one of the first things that we work with founders on once they understand the problem space well that, that they've chosen to work on, 
is to look at the, the fundamental principles of the diffusion of innovation, right? We, we go right back to Everett Rogers and talk through with each founder, you know, that we've known for, you know, nearly a hundred years have a, have a big impact on the speed of diffusion into society. We're trying to build those into our venture builder, into the concepts that, uh, that our teams are, are working on. One of the contributors to our program is a famous economist, Dimitri Zangelis, works with the Bank of England, among other, many other organizations on climate technology. And he shows some nice photographs of the difference between the streets of San Francisco in the, or sorry, of New York in the 1890s and uh, 15 years later in 1905. And how sometimes if you get the, the sort of diffusion levers right, the transition from one technological system to the other can be more rapid than we really, uh, than we really anticipate. Brilliant. A quick question before we move on. Do you only restrict yourselves to UK founders? No, no. We, we're very interested in international founders. Our first cohort started back in March 2021. That was an all-virtual uh, start because we were still in the UK in a COVID lockdown. And so we had only three non-British founders in that cohort, one intrepid American and two intrepid Germans who somehow managed to find their way to the UK despite all the restrictions and problems. But in cohort two, it was something in the neighborhood of 20-25% non-UK founders. At this point, mostly Americans, but we are bringing in cohort three, which is where we are as we're speaking right now, Sanjoy, we just started cohort three. We have a couple of African-based founders, a couple of India-based founders. You know, we're very keen to be of service to founders who are founding in global markets. Again, on this theme of diffusion, it's important that we don't say, well, everything has to start from the UK and, and radiate outwards. We want to be good at doing that. Some of the companies that we've already launched, that we've already invested in, one's starting in Mexico City, uh, working on a walkable cities project. Another is fundamentally based in Kenya and doing a fintech to bring clean tech assets more easily into the hands of SMEs. Of course, we have another project that is agroforestry based, that's based in southern Mexico and, and Guatemala as its base. So although quite a number of our projects and startups are UK, starting in UK markets, we're very open to and interested in projects that and founders that will work internationally. Great. So then these talented people come in, 70 mm. people, mm. and just talk us through what happens after that. So the first phase of our program is six weeks, and there's a requirement to be in physically in Cambridge for three days during week one, three days during week three, and three days during week five. This is for two reasons. One is that there are certain elements of teaming up and indeed ideation that happen best when there's face-to-face contact, and we just don't think that you can get away from that. Secondly, it's important to us that the founders who join our program are ready to found. They understand that they're on a journey that maybe as, as soon as six months, six to eight months after they start, means they need to be full-time or very close to full-time on the, on the venture. So someone who can't even set, come to Cambridge for five weeks or for these three three-day blocks is unlikely to be in a position where they've got the kind of flexibility in their lives to really be able to found something. It's a difficult balance, right? Because if I get someone applying to the, the program who's a top scientist and is bringing some fantastic IP, it's always very tempting to say, oh, you know, just join the program. And if you can join us, that's great. But don't worry too much. But really, so much of what we're doing is focusing on the strength of the founding team. So we do insist quite strongly that people are, are with us in Cambridge for that time. And, and we make the most of that time to bring people in contact with 
experts from the Cambridge ecosystem and our entrepreneurs in residence who are London and Cambridge based on successful entrepreneurs who do a lot of the sort of support and coaching for the individuals and the teams on our program. But it is a basic requirement. We do some work to set a common context around the climate crisis and the technology levers, but not too much, right? It's not a class. It's not a course. It's a doing program where it's really about trying to get the dream teams together. So in a way, part of what we're doing is explaining what a dream team looks like so that people can recognize it when they see it, helping people understand the concept of founder opportunity fit and why that's so important for the viability of any given startup project. We do some work on storytelling. We have an amazing fellow from the Judge Business School, Paul Bourne, who comes in, works with folks on how they can tell their story. Because one way of explaining what is the essence of being an entrepreneur is that you can tell your story 17 different ways to 17 different people. It's the same story. The fundamental innovation at the heart of the story is the same, but you're able to foreground the part of the story or the the mechanism of change that particular stakeholder among the 17 is interested in. So that's storytelling skill, drawing people along with you on the journey is really a critical part of what we're doing. And it has the nice side effect that by helping everyone understand how to tell their story better, they are exposing themselves, if you want to put it that way, to colleagues in the Venture Builder and making it more visible why the others in the group might want to team up with that person. We do some work with the the famous Cambridge founder, Anne Miller, who was one of the co-founders of the technology consulting firm, one of the three big technology consulting firms that's Cambridge-based, TTP. She does some ideation work. Many people, maybe 60% of the people who join us already have an idea. But of course, what is the term idea? It's a little bit of a fluid idea, a fluid notion. An idea is in no way sufficient, right? To say, oh, I have an idea, now I'm going to bring it to market, right? So we're helping people flesh out those ideas, consider all the, the, the different variations that they might pursue around some core notion and so on. I hope that's giving you a picture of what we do in phase one. Great. The storytelling point you make is very interesting, actually. I'll just digress a little bit as well. I had on my podcast, Fengru Lin of Turtle Tree, who is building a deep tech company in the food industry. That is, she's taking one milk protein, lactoferrin, and building that without the cows. So we're building it in a cell factory, right? And she said that the biggest challenge a deep tech founder has is to be able to explain this to the common people. And the way she described mm-hmm. it is this, how do I explain it to my six-year-old niece who can then explain it in her own language to her 80-year-old grandmother? And I thought, you know, when you describe the storytelling, I'll make the point to explain how important this is. Chris, we understand what the phase one of the program looks like. People coming in with some ideas and really chiseling this out as they confront it with uh, your entrepreneurs in residence, your other uh, experts, and of course, their cohort members themselves. But maybe this is an opportunity to step up a little bit and give us an overview of all the three phases, and then perhaps we will get down into phase two and phase three in some detail. So at the end of phase one, the co-founders have formed into teams. We were startled to find in cohort two, 68 founders joined us, 64 found a teammate. This was when we were whiteboarding this project, we thought, okay, maybe it's, if it goes well, it's 70% of the founders will find some kind of teammate, but people are joining us because they're purpose-driven, right? Part In part, right? They're joining us because they want to find a viable route to make a contribution on this effort around climate change, right? So 
64 teamed up. That was in 26 teams. Across the course of phase two, those 64 became 55. One team broke up because they couldn't find, they shared a problem space that they were interested in, but they couldn't find a shared vision about how to take the opportunity that was embedded in that problem space. Another couple of teams found that they couldn't arrive at something coherent enough and cohesive enough. But by the end of phase two, which is about 10 weeks, in cohort two, 23 teams made up of 55 people ended up pitching for an investment. That's the end of of phase two is pitching for a pre-seed investment. Across the course of phase two, there's a certain amount of teaching and workshops around value proposition, business model, pricing, and so on, and really just typically the commercial side. There is a certain amount of work on carbon, right, and understanding that what are the levers to drive carbon impact, but a tremendous amount of the time is really the the teams working to talk to customers, to understand the the pain points in in more granular detail, to arrive at the level of understanding that allows them to come up with a value proposition, a statement of how we're going to solve your problem better than your alternatives, that makes the customers stand up and take notice. The, the culmination of, of phase two is the team submits to the carbon third to our team an investment case. This is a 15-page document that's somewhere between a pitch deck and a business plan. It's not a business plan, but neither is it only a pitch deck. And based on that investment case in cohort two, we made 12 investments, of £100,000 each out of the 23 ventures. One of the surprising and pleasing outputs from cohort two is all of the 12 teams that we supported are going, maybe that's not so surprising. We only made investments in them in February, so they haven't had time to fall apart if that's what's going to happen. But many of the teams we didn't invest in have kept going, have kept working on their their problems. And actually, we do provide an opportunity for them to loop back and pitch for the investment again at the next cohort and so on, right? So some projects are just slower burners than others. And so we allow for that within our system. But a couple of the projects we didn't invest in have gone and found other investors, right? Other venture capital investors to take a chance on their projects. So we like this aspect where our impact is not only through our portfolio of investments, our impact is through all the teams that we develop and foster. Once We've made those investments. Then the final phase, which has historically been four months, although I think we're now going to shorten it a little bit, is an accelerator, right? We've made an investment. We're aligned with the team. We want the team to succeed. We're making investor introductions, but much more important than investor introductions is helping the teams make commercial progress. And often at this early stage, helping an early stage venture team make commercial progress is identical to helping them get in front of customers, begin pilot projects, figure out how to address, how to select a narrow slice, a beachhead segment within a market that they want to approach, get all of the apparatus that they're going to need to win those first few customers in place of what we're doing. And it's about figuring out the route to market and the business model and the shape of the value proposition that is going to be highly scalable in a relatively short period of time. Right. So take away one point is that after phase one, where people really come together and they spend time in Cambridge, they really go away. And you provide some soft touch, you know, some tools, some coaching. Yeah, carbon experts in residence, domain experts. We strongly encourage the teams to put together their brains trust and advisory board fairly early because no matter how dreamy the dream team, there's going to be some gaps in their knowledge, gaps in their social capital, and they need to fill in with a kind of an additional ring of supporters around the core team. 
Right. The end of phase two, they come back and make a pitch. You call it somewhere between a business plan and an investment pitch. And you take the decision to make £100,000 invest. Give us a little bit of insight as to what goes on in your heads as you make that decision. Well, it's becoming clear to us how we work towards the decision as we've having had the experience of the first two cohorts and the first 20 investments that we've made. I think we're quite clear now. So firstly, there are criteria which are very much up and down, yes or no. If you don't have these criteria, you get knocked out. And the first one on that list is the team. One of the reasons it works is that we get to work with the individuals in the team for three or four months before we make the investment decision. You know, even after they arrive in the program, we can see their work habits, we can see their thought process, we can see their collaboration skill, it gives us a great deal of, of insight into how they're going to work as a team. And I often tell the teams, we care more about, is this a team that seems to work well and has you know, good thought processes and good decision principles than you know, how much progress did you make in the first three months that you existed as a team? Obviously a team that makes no progress, you know, it's unlikely to have a team that is highly effective, but they make no progress, right? These things are linked, but we're not doing resulting where we only care about the results. We're looking at, at the decision quality of the team itself. So that's number one. Do we think the team's a good team and has reasonable founder opportunity fit? They've chosen opportunity where the team is obviously a team that has most, if not all of the core skills to execute against the critical success factors in the in business. The second criterion that's really up or down is, does the innovation have the potential to take 10 million tons CO2 equivalent emissions out of the emissions base, right? And that's, it's an iterative process, just like coming up with your value proposition is what you originally think the carbon opportunity is, the decarbonizing opportunity or the carbon mitigation opportunity is perhaps not always what seemed intuitively to be the case, right? We have to consider rebound effects. We have to consider what's the difference between affecting scope one emissions and scope three emissions and so on. There's many different factors to consider in this. Those are the two sort of up or down criteria. So once we say, okay, are there any teams in this group that we don't think are effective teams and eliminate them? Are there any teams in this group that we don't think have any potential to achieve, given the idea they're pursuing at the moment, to achieve this sort of 10 million tons uh, CO2 equivalent emissions per annum target, then we're left with a group and it becomes a more slightly fuzzier approach, right? We need projects that are potential moonshots, are potential really major, major impact opportunities. And so this question of bigger opportunities are better is quite an important one. Now, I believe we don't have the criticism of this concept of the total addressable market, which is sometimes made and which is correct, is that meaningless projection of what the future state of consumption decisions might be. And I think that's a reasonable criticism. But of course, when a team is telling you what they consider to be their total addressable market, it's not as simple as this is the biggest number that we could come up with that seemed vaguely related to the customer demand for our value proposition. It's also about you know, what are the fundamental underlying drivers that cause people or organizations to spend money on solving the problem that you intend to solve, right? And is it a big, unavoidable and generalizable problem? Or is it something that is actually, it's a niche now and, it, and we don't see the path or we don't agree that there is a path for it to go on and stop and move beyond initial niche. So that's very important. We're interested in the value proposition. What has the team been able to understand about the customer and what gets the customer excited about the opportunity to solve, a, to address a pain point that they've got? 
but the value proposition is typically a work in progress. And so it's much more the case that we're examining the quality of the thought process and some kind of idea about, okay, well, given the data that this team has got, given what they've been able to understand about the pain points, what have they come up with? Does that show a team that is able to really bring some compelling logic to the customer or not? Even if the value proposition ends up eventually being invalidated, we feel we can make some interesting judgments around the quality of the thinking there. Of course, we're interested in the state of the competition in the market. As usual with early stage entrepreneurship, there's competing imperatives, competing imperatives there. As everyone always says, the existence of competition proves the validity of the concept, right? If there's a team in Cambridge, a team in Stanford, a team in Bangalore, and a team in Shanghai, all working on basically the same problem. Well, great. That tells you something about the underlying drivers of the situation may be such that opportunity is not an, a mirage or a chimera. On the other hand, clearly some startup spaces become overheated and attract so much interest and competition. And perhaps you know, in some cases, the barriers to entry are moderately low. That's something that we're obviously going to consider. First cohort, we invested in a team that we're very happy with and is actually making good progress who were working on a carbon accounting management package. Now, there are over well over 100 startups working in this arena around the world. And so we were a little nervous, but we felt that they had a unique approach to competitors that actually had some potential to work out well. But then in cohort two, we were pitched by a team, which was also a carbon accounting management package. And just six months later, we felt that the field had become so competitive it was too late. It would have to t be an extraordinary team with a really very different story from what you would typically see out there for us to consider investing. So this is a, certainly a factor in our considerations. We're interested in the business competence that we can observe in the team, right? We're asking for financial projections and so on. You very easily tell the difference between a commercial founder who has created financial projections many times and one where Maybe the sales skills are there, maybe the, some of the other sort of leadership and management skills are there, but they haven't really got the experience of creating financial projections. Remember, now the criteria I'm talking about are not the, the knockout ones. You know, these, these are all sort of a subtle balance of, of judgment. I mean, I think those are the main aspects that we're looking at. There's something about the ambition of the team, which is quite interesting and important to us. Does as you move to phase three, which is they really get commercial viability proof points, they're in front of customers, right? And I suppose one of the things Cambridge can do well is to build a network. You know, how actively do you do that? Well, I mean, we have been working on this for three years, but, but it's 18 months since we really began building. We've put together a network significantly based in the Cambridge ecosystem, although also some other parts of the UK and the world, indeed, of over 200 domain experts split across technical and business domains. And that has already been very helpful to our teams in terms of being able to reach people who can help them reach customers. We have six entrepreneurs in residence. They are instrumental to some of the teams in helping them open those doors and so on. But we always say to teams, when they ask us for these customer introductions, we always say, well, yeah, great. We're happy to make customer introductions. But if you're a dream team, then you are doing that yourself. That's great. You have a network of domain experts. You have entrepreneurs in residence working with the companies. And of course, you are uh, encouraging uh, the companies to go out and hustle during this phase three, which is really what you want them to do. Is that kind of a good summary? Yeah, that's, that's reasonable. 
so much of, of the challenge in the early stages of getting your first customer or your first two customers is keeping your eyes on the right tasks. Right? What I see among first-time entrepreneurs so, so much is poor choices about how to spend their time and spending time on issues that don't won't really become relevant or important for a year or more instead of focusing on the proximate tasks and the proximate goals. So one of the things that we can provide through the coaching of our entrepreneurs and residents and, and the work that we do in general to our founders is that you know, we help them project manage, right? Think about the, the tasks that are really going to de-risk the project, right? And make it more attractive to outside stakeholders, including, of course, the next round of investors. Chris, you've touched upon a really important point. I'll just give an example from my own personal experience. Before I moved into carbon, I spent about a decade in e-learning. And I worked in some total systems, which is a learning management software company. And we had our CEO, Dave Crussell. He's a UK citizen and moved to the United States. And he had this saying, the vital few, as opposed to the useless men. Mm -hmm. So we had a process every year. We grew from, you know, under his leadership from a very small $30 million company to about $100 million company. And he every year we used to list down all the important things to do. And then we could pick maximum only three perhaps just to work on. whole idea is to be accountable for at least those two or three. That's something that you may want to perhaps tell your uh, cohort mm. members. Yeah, well, I think that's very well said. And the kind of people who are interested in solving tricky innovation problems often do find it difficult to focus, right? It's the curiosity that made them interested to solve a problem that other people said, oh, that's too difficult to solve, or the time isn't right for that problem to be solved that then gets them into trouble at the next stage where the curiosity continues and they keep iterating into different shapes of project. Well said as well. One thing that I was struck by in the Carbon 13 presentation in Cambridge a few days back, you repeatedly used the word community. Mm. Can you explain to our audience what this means in practice? Yes, absolutely. So you would think that entrepreneurship is the ultimate expression of individualism. We think of Elon Musk or we think of Neumann of WeWork and we say, okay, well, these are lone geniuses who are pursuing the vision. And because they're so persistent in pursuing the vision, they eventually succeed. And so if you think about entrepreneurship that way, then you would say, well, obviously the point of a venture builder is to get out of these geniuses way and to say, okay, how can we clear the path for these extraordinary enterprising individuals? Well, I do have room in my conception of the world to think that some people are visionaries. I would also say that I don't care how visionary you are, you can only succeed through other people. The history of innovation tells us that the best ideas arise from the hottest spots, the fastest flowing part of the stream. Shakespeare is one of my go-to examples for this, right? That Shakespeare stole, stole his plots from other writers, and then he just happened to be putting them on stage in London at a time when but England was becoming a significant power in the world and where the cultural life in London was sort of the richest of nearly any city in the world. And so some incredible genius expressed in Shakespeare's plays, but reflected through the lens of the society that he was in and the hotspot of the Globe Theatre, etc., that he that he worked in. So my job in creating Carbon 13 is to make a Globe Theatre and to be to have that company of players and that sort of stage and that recognition and that, that sort of sense of significance and place that means that 
if a Shakespeare comes along, we end up having been the perfect place for that genius to, to flourish. And you may find the, the comparison a little bit fanciful, but this is the, this, I hope it gives some steer as to what we're talking about with community. On a more pragmatic level, I can say in Carbon 13, we work sector agnostic. And that's partly because of the amazing innovation scholarship of Andrew van de Ven around free spillovers, right? And the idea that if you have an innovation community where people are working on related but very different projects, then you get a nice advantage, which is people share their knowledge that isn't important to their project, but is important to their neighbor's project. And so you need to create the social bonds and the sense of community and the sense of, of mutual support and potentially reciprocation that leads people to help each other in this way. I've spent much of my academic career interested in the social networks research and the concept of what's known in this social networks literature as the small world, where you have just the right level of openness, where you have strange and interesting inputs coming in from diverse directions, combined with the level of tight groups that are able to work together, collaborate together, integrate together effectively and really make things happen. There's a reasonable body of evidence that this is pretty significant if you want to do high quality, high impact, fast diffusion innovation. So it's been a wonderful experience for me in Carbon 13 because things that I've studied academically for many years, I'm now putting into practice and lo and behold, some of them work. <laughs> they say it's, there's nothing so practical as a good theory. And of course, if you're actually given a sort of crucible to put your theories into action, the truth of that saying really become, becomes evident. Back to community, all of our participants, whether they're the founders or whether they're, they're our domain experts or entrepreneurs and residents, share this mission-driven, purpose-driven idea of let's use entrepreneurship as a way to att attack climate change. We're here because of significance because of legacy because of trying to renew and change the world and that at least creates the seedbed for a sense of community that I, I believe based on my theoretical understanding and i can see already in our first couple of cohorts gives some nice opportunities for mutual support and collaboration as you would expect in a community a community is a trust building engine if i know that you share some aspects of my goals then i'm likely to trust you faster and work with you more freely and quickly than if you're just a stranger to me Chris, that is great. I understand the theory meets the practice, but entrepreneurs are also nuts. I mean, they are passionate, committed people. Yes. So examples like entrepreneurs coming together to make a pitch to a potential customer. Will an entrepreneurial team, which is building a smart energy solution, collaborate with a green mortgage team? It's a great point. So far, no, nothing formal like that. People in the three cohorts, including the new one, have come to me and proposed such alliances. And I've said, yeah, absolutely great. That's what you want to do. Incidentally, Sanjoy, we know that in Y Combinator, alumni startups doing business with each other is actually a really important source of business and first and early customers and pilot customers for Combinator startups. What you're describing is a concept that we know happens in reality. The balance that startups have to strike and that we'll see what you're describing emerge, but later in Carbon 13 journey, it's very important that the investors see the fate of any individual project as unencumbered and that they say, if, if I invest in the project and it starts to take off, we don't want you to be held back by your strategic alliance with these other guys, right? The strategic alliance needs to be a win-win, of course, but it needs to be something which is contributing to your scaling. We don't want either partner in the sort of nascent notional strategic alliance to sort of hold back the other, right? So lots of free revealing, 
lots of, oh, I met an investor who's not interested in me, but he'd definitely be interested in you type behavior. Lots of sharing knowledge about, about customers, right? And what one team found out about a particular corporate's agenda is often shared across the whole cohort. But as yet, we're 14 months from the beginning of our first cohort, so we're not that far in the journey. But as yet, we haven't seen it come to life in the formal way that you're describing. And the freewheeling thing is also important, very critical. That is a spillover thing that you talked about. But let's move on. I would like to talk about the type of companies that you have supported. Yes. Could you give us an idea? It's been all across, right? It has. As I mentioned, we deliberately are encouraging founders to look across the whole economy. And because the talent is coming to us based on the call, come and work on something that has the potential to decarbonize, without a condition of in energy, in mobility, in the built environment, in food or whatever it is, we do see a sort of a very wide range of projects. So far, it's about half hardware-based solutions and about half software-based solutions. This has actually been a surprise to us. We assumed that we would have to concentrate mostly on software. Lots of people will tell you that venture capital investors are reluctant to invest in, in hard tech and deep tech, tech things unless it's their area of specialization. But when we started to get chemists and engineers applying to the program, we checked with various investors in the scene and they said, no, absolutely. In the climate space, we are hungry for good hard tech, deep tech deals. So we thought, okay, let's try. We're really pleased with the, uh, the results so far. Of the 20, 17 are focused on B2B or a few of those are B2B2C, but their, their first port of call, the first people they're selling to are corporates. And I think that's right for the moment that we are in history right now, because although there is a change in consumer readiness and appetite to work on climate, uh, to engage with and um, consume climate-based value propositions, we, we observe that the real energy at the moment in terms of customer acceptance is around corporates who've made science-based targets, and in some cases, net zero pledges, right? Because they got to grips with the idea that they need to decarbonize, and they've done a plan, and I've seen some pretty sketchy plans from, there are very honorable exceptions to this, but as a general rule, the, the plan to get to net zero is a pretty, tends to be a, one which I could politely say is with a lot of white space in it. And so these corporates are very interested in projects that could potentially help them on their road to net zero and help them actually decarbonize their operations. That's the sense. Just to pick out a couple of specific examples for you, as you presume you would like me to do that. One from cohort two is BioZeroc. It's one of a wave of startups that is trying to find a concrete substitute. They have a particular biological process which creates a sort of bacteria-based concrete. They're doing test samples in the lab of the materials that arise from the tests that they're doing will tell them whether they go in the direction of, let's say, tiles and decorative elements or whether they go in the direction of bricks and blocks. It's a pretty early stage process uh, project, but bringing together some very good biological approaches to this, to this challenge. I think I mentioned the agroforestry project in southern Mexico and Guatemala. This isn't really just an agroforestry project. It's, it's a company called Tierra Foods, which is taking ingredients from degraded land-based agroforestry and turning them into new ingredients that can be sold into the North American markets for alternative flours, for gluten-free flours, right? So there's a number of pieces to that project. It's taking degraded land and turning it into 
successful agroforestry projects combined with a sort of food science approach to, okay, we get new ingredients from these projects. What can we do with them in the food, in the food system? I think I also mentioned X-Tons, which is the, the carbon accounting management package that we've backed. Their sort of technical lead, the person with the deep sustainability understanding had a, a somewhat differentiated approach to how to go about the challenge of measuring scope three emissions. We know that this is a huge business opportunity because as instruments like the carbon border taxes come into reality, every corporate, every large organization is going to need to measure their carbon footprint within a very short number of years, which of course is one of the reasons that we have so many competing startups in this arena. Blue methane is one of our cohort two ventures. This is a device for extracting methane from water. If a lot of in hydropower, you have a lot of methane coming up through the water from vegetation that's decaying at the bottom of the of the body of water. There's also a lot of methane coming up through water in wastewater treatment and of course in rice paddies. All of these are, you know, methane is 34 times more significant as or more potent as a greenhouse gas than than CO2. So making uh, dents in, in methane emissions is, is an urgent priority. Emeralga Biotech is developing microalgae-based solutions that can reduce the amount of nitrogen-based fertilizer that's needed on fields, uh, needed for, for agriculture. Also developing a vegan source, a microalgae-based source of omega-3. If I summarize the 20, so far I believe we have five in food and agriculture, two in mobility, five built environment stroke materials, science, startups, three what you'd call green fintech. Yeah, quite a range really across the wide variety of sectors. I found the point that you made about B2B versus B2C very interesting. I think the only place where consumer trends are moving very significantly in favor of uh, these type of green products by me, apart from mobility, of course, and energy will definitely move with the increasing mm -hmm. energy bills, is the area of food. Yeah. It's good to see entrepreneurs tackle that problem. Absolutely. It's been wonderful talking to you, Chris. And I think to conclude our conversation, I'd like to just hark back on the first thing that you said, perhaps, is that venture capital is moving nicely to support this. And mm. already you have given examples of your companies which have raised follow-on rounds, but also companies that you have not invested in being raising money from other venture capital firms. Yeah. Uh, could you just give us a quick overview of what is mm. happening here? Well, so when we started whiteboarding this project in spring 2019, I, I talked to so many investors who were introduced to me as this person is a clean tech investor. And I had the same conversation numerous times with these new contacts uh, that I was very pleased to meet, where they said, I really hate it when people identify me as a clean tech investor, because it just means that after Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth, I lost a lot of money. <laughs> Um, and of course, we know that there was a sort of first wave of clean tech investment some years ago, expectations that regulatory drivers would change more quickly than they did, stoked a kind of a bubble in the space. So it was on the basis of conversations like that, that we thought, okay, we're probably going to have to stick to only software because venture capitalists like software. But in the, in the last couple of years, the pictures began to shift as someone with a background in sort of social psychology and the social psychology of innovation. I find it fascinating to watch because what I can see is leading industry players making speeches and talking to each other and publishing sort of position papers and blogs that explain why the old normal in venture capital was about making money only from bits 
and now it's going to be about making money from bits and atoms. From a certain point of view, you could say, well, this is necessary for the venture capital industry to expand. I've seen many discussions over the past five, 10 years of saying, well, the venture capital industry, despite the possibilities of artificial intelligence, despite the excitement around blockchain and crypto and so on, the venture capital industry really needs new horizons of growth. There's only so many internet startups uh, that you can fund. The sort of regionalization of the global economy means that globalization is on hold, at least for the moment, most business areas. And many of the papers that I'm referring to or articles that I'm referring to said, venture capital needs to get into defense. Venture capital needs to get into education. Venture capital needs to make further inroads into healthcare and so on, right? And the idea was there's only so many big pots of money or big problems that need to be solved out there in the world. And these are the obvious areas. But I think the venture capital industry has, in a sense, decided that climate change is a very real problem, of course, and one which fits nicely, dovetails nicely with the venture capital model, where if you think of the venture capital model as getting in on the ground floor of projects that actually could very rapidly become multinational, near global, very large scale entities. And so a process of category construction that's going on where venture capitalists are explaining to each other, well, this are, these are going to be the new rules of the game around. Now, we see that partly expressed in climate tech specific VCs who have said, you know, whose thesis is we will, much like Carbon 13, we will only invest in climate tech. And we see it expressed in traditional mainline VCs saying, okay, we now have a partner or a division of, of what we're doing that look at the climate opportunities. Sometimes they frame it in a different way and they talk about circular economy or ESG. There's some great reports. You can look at the, at the PwC State of Climate Tech report that came out in December 2021 that shows just an explosion in the number of seed stage entrepreneurship deals being done more than double in the first half of 2021 compared to the first half of, of 2020, which in turn was a huge increase on the first half of 2019. A lot of that, as you touched on, is still in mobility, these uh, projects, but we're beginning to see so much more food, so much more built environment, so much more activity in projects that are broadening the definition of what a of what a climate change startup really is. Yet you warn about overfunding, right? Yeah, well, I mean, entrepreneurs often focus on the wrong things. They focus on problems that will be important in a year rather than the problems that are in front of them right now. And one of the reinforcing factors for that tendency is having too much money. And of course, if you're a founder, you don't think there is such a thing as too much money. You just want funding for your project. But if you're able to suddenly hire a bunch of people to make your life easier rather than actually get on with the critical path tasks and not worry about hiring a bunch of people to make your life easier. You could think of it almost as a temptation to, to stray off the path. I suppose a, a more straightforward way of saying what I'm trying to express is premature scaling kills startups. And so if you have enough money to start making ill-advised commitments that perhaps you haven't really proven the underlying assumptions behind those commitments, then you're potentially heading for trouble. So we always encourage both in the way that we invest with just 100,000 pounds at the pre-seed stage, but also when they go on to the next stage and we're advising them on what term sheets it makes sense to take, we always say, look, sometimes it just makes sense to take less money, get the strategic investors who are going to be very helpful to you around the table. And then when you've proven out the assumptions that are around your kind of current stage of development, that's when you raise a much bigger, a much bigger round. With that, thank you very much, Chris. My pleasure.